Well, thank you, Jamie, for that introduction. I want to bring you greetings from your sister Reformed Baptist Network Church, Covenant Baptist Church in Toronto. Uh, we pray for you, and we delight in you. I have very fond memories of being here in Greenville. I still remember my first Sunday at Grace. The, the congregation was arranged a little bit differently. You, you had the, uh, the three pews, and uh, I remember it because uh, we, we came in a little bit late. We got lost getting here from Sunday school, and to my wife's chagrin, who does not like sitting at the front, and to my delight, who loves sitting at the front, we had our, our seats right there in the middle. And we didn't know anyone. We had met the pastor who was preaching that Sunday once before. And we met the real estate agent who was in the church at the time who had helped us get settled. But we sat down and I, all I need to tell you is who was around us to understand what our experience would be. To the right of us were the Surratts. To the left of us, but just a bit behind, one row behind were the Aberotans. And directly behind us, where Mark and Cheryl and the Howells were over there. And basically, by the time the call to worship came, not only our lunch plans, but all the next four years of our life here in Greenville were mapped out. But I want to encourage you, before we get into this text, that God used this church so much more. Some of the times you, you see students come through, and it's, it's a delight to hear that there are students coming here from India, from Africa, and from all different places. And what you don't realize is what we carry back home. And we carried a lot back home because we experienced here the love of Jesus Christ very wonderfully. What we've just sung about, we experienced in your midst. You were there for us as brothers and sisters that wept with us as we had miscarriages. As my father had his first diagnosis with cancer and I wrestled with quitting seminary and going home. Your elders counseled us. But we also rejoiced together as my first daughter, who just turned 18 yesterday, was born here in 2005 after so many years of barrenness. And then at the end of my seminary time, we were involved with church planting in Asheville, but our, our heart's desire is to return back to Toronto, but our church, because of my dad's sickness, had dwindled and could no longer fully support us, your church, along with some other churches in an association of Reformed Baptist churches, came alongside us and supported us for those three years. At 6 a.m., every Friday morning, Bob, Self, and the elders would call me, sometimes waking me up out of bed, to pray with me, to encourage and walk with me. And that was carried through even to the day my dad died. I pick up the phone and I hear his big voice, Brother Chris. So you have walked with us and you've been an encouragement with us. And some of the things that you did, the ladies' discipleship pouring into my wife, when we came back, my wife started a ladies' discipleship in our congregation so that she could learn from you. The discipleship I received, we discipled young men and seek to raise them up and to send them out. In God's providence, we planted a church. In, uh, in Barbados in 2017. And we were talking about closing the doors in 2008. But we had the support of the body of Christ. So it's not just what you see in the pews. It's not just see what you see around you. You are participating in the advance of the gospel in, around the world. Here in Greenville, here in the United States, in Canada. And now we're seeing 
uh, brothers coming from India and from Kenya. Praise the Lord. I give thanks for you all. This week, I wasn't planning to be here to preach. I wasn't even sure I was going to come. Uh, as Jamie has mentioned, my dad passed away. But my good wife knew me better. And she said, what better place for you to go to be with your friends and your second church family and to enjoy fellowship with them. So I'm really grateful to have been here, to have enjoyed the Reformed Baptist Network General Assembly, but also just to, to, to reconnect with many of you here in the congregation. So I'm truly grateful and privileged to be here. The text before us that I chose this morning, I chose because it's been something that's been very important to me in life and death throughout my life. It's one of the most quoted and beloved texts in all the whole Bible. It's a refuge and a comfort to Christians, and it's very personal to many of us. I read somewhere a commentator said that a lot of the Bible is God speaking to us, but the Psalms are God speaking for us. To echo the cries of our hearts through our journey through life together. This psalm was instrumental in my own life and in my conversion as a boy of seven. And it's something that has been with me throughout my life. And if you want to know what a pastor's son says to his dying father, we would recite Psalm 23 together. It's something that is, it, it's often used at funerals at the end. But there's only really one verse that speaks about death. It's really a psalm of life. And I think one of the reasons for its popularity is that it reveals the character of God. It's an intimate portrait. It even begins with those four Hebrew words that we translate as the Lord is my shepherd. And you know that that statement is incredibly profound. Because when you see L-O-R-D, if you have an ESV Bible in front of you, in capital letters, that's the translator's little note to you that it's referring, that the original refers to the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh. It's the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. And it's a, it's a, it's a name that, that encompasses such great truths. Martin Luther used to say that Psalm 23 was the Bible in miniature. We're only going to be able to touch on it a little bit here, but there's so many doctrines, so many truths, so many comforts that are contained in this particular psalm. A little translation of Yahweh from the Hebrew would be, I will be present is what I will be. Dale Ralph Davis, one of my favorite Presbyterians, suggests an extended paraphrase translation of the, the name Yahweh would be, I will be present with my people to be whatever they need me to be for them. Isn't that beautiful? I will be present with my people to be whatever they need me to be for them. That's a sufficient God. We serve and worship a God who calls himself that name. I will be present with my people to be whatever they need me to be for them. He is our shepherd. And this is something that distinguishes the Christian God from all other pretender gods out there, all other false gods. A God who is personal, a God who helps us, 
who shepherds us, who comes alongside us. He's relational, and we can know him. And he's not ashamed to call us his brother. This foundational truth was important to me all those years ago when as a little boy I came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as we heard the testimonies this morning, like some of you, my conversion wasn't necessarily a lightning bolt moment. It was being raised in a pastor's home, being surrounded by the gospel, being discipled in faith until I came to a, a reasonable understanding of Jesus Christ as my Savior. And Jesus Christ is the good shepherd who laid down his life for me. When I was afraid to believe that God could save a sinner like me and that I would face his judgment in hell, this psalm helped me to understand his true character as God. Not a God that's looking to zot me or destroy me, but gracious to save me and to protect me from evil. So that even though I pass through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Now, we often look at this psalm in isolation, but if you really want to appreciate this psalm, it's really interesting to look at it in the context of the psalms. The, the order of the psalms are not necessarily random. In fact, there is a real structure to them. The psalm that precedes Psalm 23 is Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm where it prophetically displays Jesus' suffering on the cross for our sins by which we obtain the benefits of a shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. Psalm 22, verse 1, are the very words that Jesus Christ utters on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now we know now that Jesus died and was forsaken so that those who believe in him would not perish, wouldn't face the wrath of God, but would come to know and to trust him for everything. That they could lie down in the green pastures that we see displayed here in the beginning of this psalm. They could fear no evil. And we, we love this psalm, and we delight in this psalm, but we don't need to just look at what came before, but look at what comes afterwards. Because Psalm 24 tells of Jesus' future triumphant return when the glorious shepherd king will come and rescue us and we will dwell with him forever. If you haven't ever read Psalm 23 with Psalm 22 and Psalm 24, maybe do that this afternoon. Go and reflect on God's provision for you in life and death. The message of this psalm is both simple and deep. It speaks of a God who humbles himself to become a lowly servant of his people, a shepherd of his flock. But he's not only a shepherd. He also is truly amazingly a friend. So that's our simple outline this morning. The Lord is our shepherd. And secondly, the Lord is our friend. I'm just going to pray before we unpack it together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, even in the dark valleys of the shadow and in the bright green pastures. Lord, restore our soul. Nourish us this morning. Speak, O oh Lord, through me. Use me, Lord. Open ears and eyes for the first time to the glory of your gospel or for the millionth time. May we reflect and delight in your glorious provision. In Jesus Christ, 
the good shepherd. His name we pray. Amen. Again, we start out with that first verse. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What does that mean to you? What does it mean to you when you hear that? I think sometimes something is so familiar to us that we sometimes lose the impact of it. We live in an age of cynicism. It's too easy to lose sight of what that phrase and and the glory of what that, that, that phrase really means. And I think it's because we are quick to lose hope in our world. What do we mean by that? Well, cynicism or unbelief shows up in how we respond to our situations and our difficulties in life. For example, we might pray for something, and then, in God's grace, we get it, but sometimes we'll think, well, that would have happened anyway. Right? Or we'll have given up praying because we don't think that it makes any difference. We don't actually believe, practically, that God is our shepherd. And we don't believe that we will not be in want. In fact, we live in constant fear of being in want of something. Really appreciated the way that Tim Keller has written on this topic. He puts it this way. He says, cynicism is distrust or unbelief masquerading as wisdom. Masquerading as wisdom. But where does this cynicism come from? A lot of the times people say, well, I'm cynical because I'm just realistic. I'm just real about the world. You've got to be honest. But whatever we tell ourselves about that, the real reality is that cynicism's origin is in sin. While it is important to believe that sin is real, the danger is that we begin to feel it everywhere. We even think we see it in God himself. And this is exactly what the devil tries to make us believe. From the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, he causes us, he wants us to cause to doubt the word of God. The word that is the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. He says this, the very first words, he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, speaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what a wicked lie that was. He's taking God's gracious and good provision and saying, You know what? The one thing that God doesn't want you to have, Eve, the reason why he doesn't want to do it is because you're going to be like him. He's He's trying to keep it all for himself. You've got all this glory, all this wonder. That one thing. That's often how it works, isn't it? It's like, I'd be so happy if I just had that one thing. That's how the devil works. Satan presents God to Adam and Eve cynically. As a two-faced God, just trying to keep you down, to keep you from becoming like him. And it's easier, isn't it? It's safer to be cynical about what's going on in the world. And it sometimes feels like evil is more powerful than God, more omnipresent than God. And sometimes cynicism feels more real than our faith does. In fact, really, in our day and age, this is the 21st century, if you're not cynical... The world laughs at you and tells you that you're naive. Cynicism creates distance. As Keller notes, he says, the cynic never really tries anything. They just criticize others. 
He says cynicism protects you from crushing disappointment, but it also prevents you from trying things and trusting because evil is everywhere. It's actually a very defeatist attitude. But while we are clear about acknowledging the presence of evil and sin and the power of Satan, as Christians we know that this is not a a battle between equal powers, good and evil. This is not like Star Wars and the Force, the dark side and the light side, and who's going to win? We know who's going to win. Jesus Christ has already won. He has triumphed over sin and death and the death of death and the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so we do not have to operate out of uncertainty. He's given us a firm foundation in Christ alone. My hope is found. He is my strength, my song. It's interesting to see that despite the reality of evil that is in the world, humans are still capable of optimism. But as Christians, our optimism must be grounded in an eternal reality. We need to be wise as serpents, acknowledging the presence of evil, but as children of God, we're called to be as harmless as doves. There is to be a godly innocence to us, a trusting spirit, but not in men and the strength of men, not in politicians or princes, for they to dust will will return, as the old hymn says. And we're not to have a faith in faith or a faith in hope, we see that in our, in our culture. I remember the, 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 the iconic signs in the uh, 2008 campaign for President Barack Obama. The great big iconic sign of hope. Hope in what? In the man on the poster? I remember there was a, a real movement. Those were iconic things when I was here the last. And I remember watching on CNN at the time, or NBC, sorry, One lady, Peggy Joseph, was interviewed. And her optimism in President Obama, elect Obama at the time, was unbelievable. She was quoted as saying, I never thought this day would happen. I won't have to work on putting gas in my car. I won't have to work at paying my mortgage. You know, if I help him, that's Obama, he's going to help me. Now, this is the kind of optimism that creates cynics. And it actually sounds crazy, and we we chuckle at it. It's like, come on, really? Why do we chuckle? Well, it's because it's grounded in a belief in someone who can't actually do the things that they're saying. Obama could not provide those things. In fact, Peggy was interviewed years later and asked if any of those things had ever happened. And she confessed that things had only gotten worse. She told a reporter that her mortgage payments and that her gas prices had actually increased. And she confessed that she had misplaced her hopes in Obama. But let's be real. It could have been Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Ronald Reagan or any other president or man or woman. So if groundless optimism doesn't work, then what is the alternative that the Bible presents? Well, the Bible presents a hope that is based in the eternal reality, in the reality of the God who is our creator, our shepherd, and our strength. The power of this first verse is the Lord is 
our shepherd. Present tense, right now. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. The one who created us, the one who sustains us, the one who saves us, and the one who delivers us from the bonds of death into everlasting life. And his name is repeated at the end of the psalm, too, just in case we've forgotten what it ends with. He says, I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. That's real hope. That's powerful comfort. This is our God who is our hope in ages past and our hope for years to come. He's our shepherds now. Now, have you ever wondered why this image of the shepherd is used? We think of them as these noble men, these pastoral views of them, you know, with sheep and you know, we have the, the, the picture of the, the good shepherd carrying the baby lamb, and they look like very soft men. But biblically, in, in the times when David himself was a shepherd, shepherds in Israel were considered the lowest class of people. It wasn't his brothers that were out there taking care of it. He was the runt of the litter, David, that was the shepherd. His older brothers had more important jobs. David had the worst job, the shepherd. But in this psalm, we see that God humbles himself. He presents himself as becoming our shepherd to guide us as sheep. He is the servant shepherd to guide us. And because he's the one guiding us, we have no lack. He is everything to us. Guide, physician, protector. We are not in want. That's what it says. Now, grammatically, you could translate, I shall not want, as I will never be in want with God as my shepherd. Have you ever thought yourself in that way? My kids found out recently how much, uh, I think it was, they, they were reading something that was a little bit older, but it was how much Bill Gates made a second. And they were like millions of dollars. And just, their eyes were like saucers, you know. Wow. Every second, he makes so many millions of dollars. And I said to my kids, kids, I'm the richest man in the world. They're like, oh, dad, not another one of these theological points, right? But it's true. Because if I have Yahweh as my God, I shall never be in want. I might need some things, but I will never be in want because I have a God who provides for what I need. Maybe not what I think I need, but he knows everything. It's beautiful because this is what God intends for us all along. He is our Sabbath rest. Because what I want and what I need is really to be in fellowship with him. We're not meant to be alone, right? Eve was created for Adam. But Adam and Eve were meant to exist as, as this little nuclear family over here. They were meant to walk and talk with the Lord in the garden. And that's our greatest need as we've been cast out of the garden because of our sin, because of our arrogance, because of our, 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 our uh, idolatry. We try to find our hope and our, our fulfillment and our wants in the material things, in the created things, rather than the creator. He is designed to fulfill our wants. We do not start with our works 
to save us. Roman Catholicism has got it all wrong. We begin with God's finished work. Jesus' triumph on the cross. That's what secures us rest and peace. And that's the picture that we find there in verse 2. He says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The waters that have been quelled. Jesus Christ can command the storm to end in a moment. Some of you may have read that little book by Philip Keller. He's a pastor and an author who for eight years himself was a shepherd. And out of that experience, he wrote that little book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And it gives some context on the statement in verse 2. He says, sheep do not lie down easily. In fact, he says, it is almost impossible for them to be made to lie down unless four requirements are met. Owing to their timidity... They refuse to lie down unless they are free from all fear. They have to be free from all fear. But because of the social behavior within a flock of sheep, they will not lie down unless they are free from friction with others of their own kind. If there's a disturbance in the flock and they're running all around, they're not going to lie down. If they are tormented by flies or parasites, they will also not lie down. Only when free of pests, Will they relax? And lastly, sheep will not lie down as long as they feel in need of finding food. They must be free from hunger. So those are the four things. Fear, friction, flies, famine. Sheep must be free of each of those to be contented. And as Keller notes, only the shepherd can provide the trust, the peace, the deliverance, and the pasture that's needed to free the sheep from themselves. And that's exactly what Jesus provides for us. David could only anticipate the spiritual shepherding of Psalm 23, but Jesus fulfills this. The Apostle John says, Jesus is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for his sheep. He not only makes them comfortable, he dies so that they can have rest. Do you believe this? you know this for yourself but this rest that we talk about it's not complacency it's not an overly naive optimistic view of the world that encourages us to do nothing no it's informed by god's word as the psalmist says he restores my soul how does god restore our soul well elsewhere we see in psalm 19 verse 7 he says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. What is it that restores us? What is it that makes us new? What makes us wise for this world? The Word of God. The Word of God. It's refreshment and wisdom. It provides rest in, eternal God, in God's eternal wisdom and direction. I love Psalm 119, which is just a reflection on the Word of God. And in it, there's this this phrase in verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We all know that one. But in verse 32, it says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. And this is what the Word of God does. Sometimes when we're feeling discouraged and depressed, the last thing we want to do is open up the Word of God, isn't it? But it's the thing that we desperately need to do. 
And sometimes fulfilling your duty to open the scriptures is the means by which you receive the delight of the scriptures and the relationship. Right? My old professor at seminary used to say, you can't get hit by the train if you don't stand in the tracks. If you don't open the scriptures, you can't receive the blessing. They are the means of grace that he has given to us. So why does God do this, though? What's in it for him? Why is he your shepherd? God's motive for all of this is found in verse 3. He says, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What does that mean? Well, it is for God's glory that he shows us this grace. If you have your Bibles, you can see this in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, beginning in verse 22. God explains his motivation for his shepherding of his people. He says, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. You'll be the shepherd. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. So God saves us for his own glory. It's not because we're good, it's because he's good. And brothers and sisters, that's the real hope. Because we are not good and worthy of being saved, we're worthy of being forgotten. But we have a God who's greater than us, who's better than us. We have a grace that is greater than our sin. And we have a God who is a shepherd who is determined to pull us back by hook or by crook to him so God acts not out of our merit but according to his gracious plan and he will make new men and women of us I love what Pastor Vody Bachman said about adoption on Wednesday night that it's part of God's sovereign plan it's not just justification and sanctification and glorification is justification adoption. Not only does he declare us righteous in the courtroom, he brings us into the living room. He gives us the, the, the keys to the house, the car, and everything else. He loves on us because that is who he is. 
and our holiness is guaranteed. The call to be holy as I am holy is utterly devastating. How can we be holy like God is holy? We can be holy as God is holy because God has committed to make us holy. And he will carry us through those things. All things work together. Yes. We say that, oh, that's lovely, that's a wonderful thing. But God works through hard things. He works through death. He works through sickness. He works through disability. He works through the loss of relationships. All of those things wean us away. Speaking personally, I, the day that I probably feared the most as a minister was the fact when my dad said to me that he wanted me to do his funeral. Because I love him. And I barely got through my sister's funeral the other year. And I look back and, and, and I, 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 I would think, I was like, how could I possibly preach that funeral? He's too meaningful. I just want to be there. I just want to mourn. I want to be sad. I am. But you know what? God brought Alzheimer's and cancer into my dad's life. And my dad became something that he wasn't. And I saw that not only was he a great man to me and a mentor and a friend and a pastor, a pastor of pastors, he was also a weak human being. He was also a human being that was affected by the curse of sin and his body was wasting away. And over the last five years that he's had the cancer and the Alzheimer's, the Lord has worked in me as well. And it really wasn't until like a couple months ago, that I started to pray that God would take him. And I got to tell you, all my prayers before that were that somehow he wouldn't. But God used that hard time to put my life and my relationship with my dad into perspective. He can use everything, even something as awful that I hate with all my heart as cancer, and the long goodbye that they call Alzheimer's. I used to say to people that I had a hard time saying the phrase, come Lord Jesus, right? We're all supposed to say that, right? It's the end of Revelation, John is like, come Lord Jesus. And you know, part of me is like, yes, come Lord Jesus, but wait a bit, wait a bit. There's a lot I want to have happen. But going through some of those experiences made me realize, you know what, his timing is perfect. If he can do this with me, he's in control of all those things. So I can gladly say, come Lord Jesus. Come the good shepherd. The shepherd doesn't want to grant us a peace that is an escape. He gives us a peace that goes beyond all our understanding. Even in the darkest valleys of our lives, when we're facing death, he's there to guide us through. And that's the image that we see in verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, I've never been to Israel, but I've watched lots of documentaries and studied this, the geography of this. And the ravines of Israel are cut by what are called wadis at the bottom. And they're extremely dangerous to descend into and very hard to climb out of and could harbor all kinds of dangers and dangerous animals. 
all in all, basically valleys were a sheep's nightmare. And the amazing work of God is illustrated here in this verse when it shows us that the valley of the shadow of death is as much God's right path for us as the green pastures and the quiet waters. I remember uh, hearing in my Southern Presbyterian seminary many old Southern Presbyterians, and I think it was um, Stonewall Jackson who said something to the effect of, I'm as safe on the battlefield as I am in my bed under the sovereign care of my God. Now that's a, a Canadian paraphrasing, so the, for those of you Stonewall Jackson historians, I apologize, but the sense is right. He was as safe on the battlefield as he was in bed. Do you have that confidence? Wherever you are, whether you're in a green pasture this morning, or whether you're in the valley of the shadow, know this, you have a Lord who is your shepherd. He is with you. We don't have the big picture as he does, but we can stand on his promises. And we can cry out to him as David does throughout the Psalms. And we have the promise that we find in 1 Timothy 10, 13, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You hear that bit. You see the way of escaping, like, oh, okay, great. He's not going to be put me in a situation that's bad. No, he's going to put you in difficult situations, but he will guide you through it. He will go through the valley with you. So we go equipped and outfitted into the valley with his protection. He is our protector and our comfort. We are naked sheep, and he is the shepherd. Now again, we talked about the image of the shepherd as this, you know, kind, wise man, usually with a long, white, flowing beard, you know, to envelop the sheep that's in his hand, and he walks, and he seems very, he's a beautiful staff. He looks like Gandalf, right? That's sort of our, our, our view of the good shepherd. But I think that obscures what biblical shepherds were like. Um, Spurgeon, in his Treasury of the Psalms, he quotes J.M. Porter, who describes some 19th century shepherds who still shepherded sheep in the Transjordan area. And this is how he described them. He said, the shepherds themselves had none of that peaceful and placid aspect which is generally associated with pastoral life and habits. They looked like warriors marching to the battlefield, a long gun slung from the shoulder, a dagger and heavy pistols in the belt, a light battle axe or iron-headed club in the hand. Such were the equipments, and their fierce flashing eyes and scowling countenances showed but too plainly that they were prepared to use their weapons at any moment. So maybe we need to adjust our view as sometimes we have those, I, I, don't, I don't like any pictures of Jesus, but we have those Jesus, you know, Jesus the good shepherd, and he looks beautifully, and he's like, like he's had a facial, and you know, he looks beautiful, that it's there, and he, he would look beautiful. But that's not the image that's here. It's more almost like a, a warrior, you know, a Rambo-type figure is there to go and to protect the sheep, and frankly, that's who I want protecting me. He is the warrior, shepherd, king of kings, and he is with you. If you're a Christian this morning, you know that security. And if you're not a Christian this morning, don't you want that? Don't when you want to know that whatever the world has to, to give you, whether you, if you're a child or a young person looking forward into the future and saying, I don't know what's going to happen, 
ChatGBT is going to rule the world. What am I going to do? How am I going to provide for myself? You have a God who is your shepherd. He knows you. He loves you. He will provide for you if you trusted him. No one can snatch his sheep out of his hands. That's what it says in John 10, 28. And if you're a Christian, you can know 1 John 4, 4. He is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Because if you know Jesus Christ, he's not just the shepherd that's out there. He is also sent his spirit to indwell you. As a boy, I learned the simple chorus, my Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All I have to do is follow. And when I was growing up, if I was walking through a dark place or a dark uh, park or park ground, I would sing that song. I would have comfort knowing that my Lord knows the way through through the wilderness. He is my shepherd. And yes, even to death. I don't think that, that this, this, this metaphor here of the valley of the shadow of death is limited to death, but death is one of the difficulties that might be faced. I think many people don't know the unknown. They don't know what happens to death. And so you have these books that are, you know, like 20 minutes in heaven and all this kind of nonsense that's out there. The Bible tells us all we need to know about heaven. The Bible tells us that when we die, we go to be with Christ. But still people fear death. But John Wesley used to say, our people die well. Because they know what they're, they're going to experience. They know that they're going to die, and they're going to be with Jesus Christ. That's the assurance of the Christian. Do you have that assurance this morning? You can. Trust in Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, who laid down his life. That whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life with him forever. And if Jesus is our shepherd, he is the true and eternal basis for our hope in this world. It's not a baseless hope in a politician that can't provide and and follow through on his promises. He is the God who keeps his promises. Not just some of the time, every time. As we close, I want to look briefly, not only God as our shepherd, but there's this miraculous and wonderful transformation that happens in verse 4 to 6. Look at what it says. Even though I walk through the valley of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your wad and your staff, they comfort me. There's a shift here in the pronouns. They change from the more distant third person, singular, when referring to Yahweh, to the more intimate second person, singular. What it means is, it's almost as if in this, in this passage where he starts talking about the valley and everything else, he, he senses God is closer to him. And it's reflected in his language. He is his shepherd. He's right there. And one of the most powerful images that is, is found here in Psalm 23 is that in verse 5. It says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In recent years, 
I have discovered that I really don't like eating outside. I remember the romance of the thought, but the reality is sometimes very different. We were praying, uh, Jamie was praying earlier for Matt Foreman, uh, the, the pastor in media, and we're good friends. And about 10 years ago, when our kids were little, they came up and we decided that we would take them out to the Toronto Islands, a beautiful place uh, that had been created in our city. We thought we'd have a lovely picnic with them. We were thinking the teddy bears picnic, right? All the kids and happiness and joy. Well, it was more like the teddy bears picnic nightmare. Because as soon as we got there, as we got the food out, we were swamped by wasps who were hanging out in the picnic area just waiting for unsuspecting humans and their sweet, sweet sugar and their provisions. So instead of being able to enjoy our food, we had to deal with the kids completely freaking out, screaming, running around, and worrying when they would get stung. Now you can imagine, it's very easy to be distracted when you're eating and for that to ruin your meal. But look at the picture that is drawn for us in verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And the imagery here is that God is setting a leisurely table where God hosts us in the middle of a battle. Forget about wasps. You know, you've got arrows flying around. And, and yet we're so secure with him that in the midst, in the presence of our enemies, we can sit down and commune with God. And sometimes that's like coming here to church in the midst of everything else. Your life may be falling apart, but you come here and it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Right? It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Better be a doorkeeper in his house. Right? Because here we commune with God. Here we have a taste of heavenly fellowship with him as we sing, as we pray, as we receive his word and his direction for our lives. He gives us what we need. There's no gulping and running at Yahweh's table. No, our enemies are not even as powerful as a bunch of wasps to disturb us at a picnic. They can't get near us when Yahweh is present. And unless he permits it. In the Old Testament world, to eat and drink at someone's table created a bond of mutual loyalty. It was at that time that covenants were made and inaugurated. Moses and the elders did it in Exodus 24. And Jesus inaugurated the new covenant in his blood at the Lord's Supper. And here we see in Psalm 23, God promising his loyalty. He's never failing, never falling, never stopping, always and forever love. Right? He says, surely goodness and mercy... And the original there is my favorite Hebrew word. And yes, you have to say it with spit. Chesed. Chesed. That is a picture of God's love. Surely, goodness and mercy. Chesed shall follow me all the days of my life. Davis, in his commentary, argues that this verse should be translated, surely goodness or even only goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life. Think of that as a picture. God pursuing you. 
He does. He's a gracious and a sovereign God. He unleashes that love that pursues us. It's a loyal love, a grace that is greater than our sin. He chases us home with grace. When my Noah, who's now 16, was a little boy, he used to love a game that was simply called, I'm gonna get you. And it consisted, we had a little, uh, little staircase in, our, in the middle of our home of me running after him with various growls saying, gonna get you, I'm gonna get you. And we'd run around and we'd run around and, and he would just giggle and he would just laugh and he loved it. And he would never get tired of this game. But honestly, I would. But he would always say, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you. And then if I stop, he'd be like, again? Again? Daddy? Again? And I'm like, oh, all right, Noah. Going to get you. I'm going to get you. Ah! And he's going around. And then I'd stop. He'd be like, again? Again? And of course, all those little agains encouraged me to go after him. But our God is not like that. He doesn't need our encouragement to go after us. He pursues us relentlessly with a love that never spoils, perishes, or fades. That continues with us, as Jesus says in the Great Commission, even to the end. Jesus Christ. That's the love of God. That's the Lord who is our shepherd. That's the Lord who is our friend. You know, a lot of people use this psalm, and you, you see it in, in you know, when, when somebody dies, it's almost inevitably... When the queen died, uh, when presidents die, they read this. And a lot of people recite them, and I, I often wonder, like, how do, you, how, do you, how do you process this if you're not a believer? Because there's so many truths and so many wonders that are here, but they're only if God is real. God is who he says he is. Can you imagine a life without God? Maybe you're living it right now. But if you're a Christian, have you ever thought about what it's like to be without God? I think the motivation for evangelism is really compassion. It's recognizing the lostness and having a real concern to face rejection and disdain by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. But you do it anyway because you want people to know his goodness. You're motivated to it. Because without God, life is meaningless. One of my favorite authors is the biblical counselor, David Pallison. And he wrote an anti-Psalm 23 to show us the emptiness and wastefulness of a life spent without a shepherd. Listen carefully to this. We're going to respond congregationally in the moment by reading the real Psalm 23 together. I'll ask the AV guys if they can put that up in a moment. But here's the anti-psalm. This is what he wrote. This is basically going through the verses of Psalm 23. You can even look at it in your own Bible as you do that. You can see what it's like, what Psalm 23 would be without God. It starts this way. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I feel thirsty. 
My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist, I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and the final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me, except me. And I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever? Homeless? Free falling into the void? Sartre said, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death. And then I die. Bleak. Isn't it? That is life without Jesus, without the Lord as your shepherd. It's honest, but it's empty. Void of peace, void of real and lasting joy, void of rest and true, deep, reliable relationship. Even the deepest friendships that we have, even the marriages, as glorious as they can be, end all in death. But our relationship with God does not end. Where is your sufficiency? Where is your relationship? Is this your reality? A living death and then you die? Or is it something else? Look to the shepherd. Let's read Psalm 23 together in unison as a congregation. Have your Bibles, you can open there. Or if you just remember it, just recite it. And if I hear the these and thous, sure. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Do you know that reality? May the Lord continue to be your shepherd, Grace Baptist Church. And if there are any here who do not know him as your shepherd, you can turn to him today. You can put your trust in him. 
Jesus says, if you come unto me, I will in no wise cast out. He will not turn you away. He is the good shepherd. He is the help, and he is your hope in life and death.